Welcome back to another edition of the New Age Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Andy White, and with me today. Yo! Mike Fearbold, in the house, etc. And... Uh, you have Terry Chapman Dharma, sensible and dull as always. So the trio are back in force on the New Age Boxing Podcast. Right, it's been a bit of a big week for boxing. Not in as much as the fights, not in as much as fights coming up, but the bombshell that was not Eubank versus Triple G. Yeah, so we've had, what, two weeks now of prolonged gossip, rumour, negotiation, public fallout of Kel Brook trying to sign off a fight with Jesse Vargas and Chris Eubank Jr. was publicly looking for the uh, Golovkin fight. And then it's all been turned on its head by the announcement by uh, Eddie Hearn over the weekend that Kel Brook is going to step up two weight divisions and take on Gennady Golovkin in, you know, a move that kind of it has all the, the similarities of when Khan um, out of the blue came out and um, took on Canelo. It's, you know, it looks a little bit like that. It's it's huge. Um, and so fair play because, you know, Brook was going down this seemingly lost avenue of his career and now he's taken, you know, a risk that many, many fighters wouldn't even consider doing. And I think we can probably come onto it later but you can probably bracket Chris Eubank Jr. in with those fighters that probably won't bother trying to fight Golovkin in the end. How did you see the fallout of this, Terry? Or the sort of fallout, like, what did you make of it? I'd heard things that the negotiations weren't going well. And like, so this has been, this has been bubbling for probably the best part of a week. Normally in boxing, you present a number to someone and it's the number they care about. Vargas was happy with the initial number. Obviously, things have happened since exchange rates have changed, you know, and naturally 10% makes a massive difference to, you know, how much you're willing to pay someone. Vargas doesn't really need the fight. Okay, $2 million is a big deal, but Vargas can fight twice under top rank and get fed opponents and probably make that money anyway. So he's not under that much pressure to fight. To be honest, the truth was Brook was under immense pressure to give the fans a meaningful fight. One one of the things that I did expect was Eddie Hearn to be under severe financial pressure to make something happen in September. So he was going to have a big fight in September. It was either going to be Chris Eubank Jr. versus Golovkin with Brook to follow in October or basically try and find a way of getting one of his other stars in. The problem is Kel Brook makes no money for Eddie Hearn. So what you've seen now is Eddie Hearn saying, Do you know what, it's about time you paid me back for everything we've done for you. Take this fight. I'm not excited by it. I think you're, you're leading someone to a horrible and violent slaughter. I just, I, you know, I respect the Ingles a lot. I don't think they have anything in their locker that will defeat Golovkin, that will give Golovkin trouble. And I genuinely worry, not about Brook in this fight, but what Kel Brook will we have after this fight? I'm genuinely worried. Uh, worried about what? If you're not worried about this fight, what are you worried about the next fight for? The beating he'll take in this will take a part of his soul. And you have someone who is arguably the number one or number two welterweight on the planet. By rights, he should be boxing the likes of Danny Garcia, Keith Thurman, um, you know, the Timothy Bradleys of this world. That's who Kel Brook should be fighting. And we've discussed it on the podcast before. 
the Americans don't want to come over here. They don't trust our judging, more importantly, and they don't really think financially it makes sense. Eddie Hearn is reluctant to send his prize assets to America because, you know, he doesn't get the gate receipts, which he needs to sustain his business model. So it's left Kell Brook in this position of being a potential star, unable to fulfill his potential because he can't box in America. So we don't know if this is essentially Eddie Hearn saying to Kell, look, I've given you a big payday. I can't make any money with you. After this, you decide where you want to go next. A smart man would probably say to Kell Brook, maybe it's time you went to America. Have two years in America, like James the Gale's doing, and have the fight that will define your career. So similar, in essence, to uh, what Khan did a little while ago. Why Did that fare well for him? Khan was in a far better position from being in America than he would have been in the UK. So if you look at who he is in America, the Americans were validly calling for him to fight Floyd Mayweather. They thought Amir Khan would be the threat and they could see the business sense in doing it. So it works if you have the right fights. Um, I want to drift off onto a tangent here, and I think there's something we need to really think about. Kel's interest and Eddie Hearn's interest diverge at this point. Where we are, I think, is we're, we're coming up to Matchroom version 3. Um, version 1 was Barry Hearn, the Eubank Ben, you know, big British dust-ups, you know, which then got superseded by Frank Warren. And then we move into Matchroom version 2, which was Eddie resurrecting the Matchroom brand, getting them back on Sky, turning them into the dominant force in British boxing. And now we're into phase 3, where Eddie clearly realises bringing the Americans over doesn't make financial sense. So he's acquiring as many belts as he can. And what he wants to do going forward is build his own stars, have three or four legitimate threats in each weight class and just have domestic dust-ups for belts. You know, ideally unification bouts, you know, he's more than happy, as we've seen with Joshua, to buy belts. He paid, what's the Charles Martin, $5.8 million to basically turn up and lie down. And that's where Matchroom's going. I don't, I don't see them looking outside their own camp for their big fights anymore because it's not viable financially. And the problem for Kell Brook is Kell Brook is Matchroom 2. You know, and he's one of the relics of that era where he's a big name on probably relatively attractive terms with Eddie. And Eddie's looking at it going, I can't make money filling out the Sheffield Motor Point Arena anymore. Therefore, I don't really need you. I've got Joshua. I've got the London 2012 boys coming through. And now I've got the London 2016 boys coming through, along with O'Hara Davis, Isaac Chamberlain, Craig Richards. I have enough talent to secure the future going forward. Loyal to me on terms I'm comfortable with and able to create these domestic fights that will make far more money than bringing Americans over. So I think Kell Brook is just, as as I've written in an article before, Kell Brook is Matchroom's odd man out. Yeah, it's an interesting point of view. I mean, going back to the um, the imminent future, I guess, the, the Triple G stuff, like, I mean, let's let's take it back. I mean, the whole debacle around Vargas and Eubank and um, Triple G was all a bit of a mess, really, wasn't it? Um, so now this is, has been signed off. If you listen to what Eddie Hearn said uh, in the IFL interview straight after the uh, the announcement, I don't know if you listened to that one, told Terry. Was, um, it took, is that the one where where Coogan basically just called him up? And yeah, they, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you've got Eubank Senior has apparently like all the terms were agreed, but then Eubank Senior was um, 
wanting to dictate, say, who would be the commentator and what the ticket prices would be and loads of other stuff that just, you know, Hearn was saying, if I let him do that, I've got to let everybody do it. It sets a precedent. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Brook is the odd one out. But then from the back of that, from the back of those Eubank senior talks, apparently he rang up Brook and said, kind of, you know, we're stalling on Vargas and now this Golovkin Eubank stuff has fallen out of bed a little bit. And Brook just said, oh, I'll take the fight. Do you think that happened? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no. I, I can imagine the conversation being this simple. Kel, if you don't take this fight, I have nothing else for you. I have nothing for you till early next year. You'll have, end up having to fight Sam Eggington. I imagine that was the call that was had. It was like, look, I had to clean up Tenerife for you. You owe me. Because I don't imagine Kel Brook woke up and said, I want to fight Triple G. Who the hell wants to fight Triple G? Yeah. Uh, do you want to explain the Tenerife reference there? Um, I think. Or well, don't you? <laughs> Should I do it in a slightly less slanderous way? Well, well, well let me let, let me not let me not leave myself open to legal action. What we do know is Cal Brook suffered a stab injury in Tenerife. Now there are all sorts of allegations about what caused it, where it went. That's neither here nor there. The key thing is that story was r- rose and fall so quickly you know money was put behind it to shut it down. We still don't know who stabbed Kelbrook. We still don't know why he was stabbed. The guy hasn't been to trial. The Spanish police have never commented on it, which suggests a cover-up. And those sorts of cover-ups cost a lot of money. So you wonder if you take the cost of cleaning up the Tenerife mess, a mess it was, with the aborted Alexander fights. (laughs) If, of course, he did do anything... If, of course, those two things are linked monetarily, yeah. You know. but, but if you add up the costs of having to clean up, because there would have been some PR cleanup, that, I don't even think that's... Right, yeah, PR. Debate. If we're talking about PR, yeah. yeah. There would have been PR cleanup. Then you've got the aborted camps for Alexander 1, Alexander 2. You've got the aborted camps for Chavez. The costs match from accrued in doing that. Kel Brooks in the hole for a lot of money. This is Eddie saying, look, you're in a hole with me. This is how you get out the hole. Once you've paid me your money, you can stay but you're not really one of my frontline soldiers anymore. Or you can go to Al Heyman. Al Heyman loves an IBF belt. So you can go over there. Um, go and have your fights. Have your unifications. Go and make your money like James the Gale is. And we might do business further down the line. I completely agree. I think Terry's nailed it there, really. I can't I can't see in any way whatsoever. And I know Brooke's spoken about it before. We're going back like three months or whatever. And he's spoken about wanting Triple G um and everybody laughed at him and now like oh the whole eddie hearn can come out and say everyone laughed when brooks said that he wanted golovkin yeah and everyone's laughing now mate because your bloke's about to get flattened at the o2 um and it seems almost like it is a situation to me i would have to take a punt there's a situation of duress that as terry says you know ultimately you owe me a massive favor nothing's falling into place in terms of eubank golovkin Brooke Vargas, the money must have been rising for Vargas all the time in a fight that doesn't particularly sell because, you know, outside of like, you know, real, real boxing fans, Jesse Vargas isn't a known quantity. He's not a name. You can't sell him as one of the best in the world coming over. Now, Golovkin, they can do that with no problem. So, like, he may not be the biggest known boxer in the world. He's not Floyd Mayweather in terms of stature and reputation. But it's not going to be a hard sell to get the name Golovkin out there. All they've got to do is put together a highlight reel of his last 20 knockouts or whatever. 
and he's going to look the business. Um, and so that's an easy sell. That O2 will sell out in minutes, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, like I, I cannot see that Brooke has taken this out of choice. So, so I'm going to throw a massive curveball in here, and I really hope at this point John is listening because this is going to touch on things that are important to John's life. Hi, John. David Hayes dress sense. How does that come into yeah, it? That will come into it. So, <laughs> look look at the match from revenue profile. They made money when Joshua fought Charles Martin, but they had to pay Charles Martin five point eight million dollars. So they essentially took a loss on that card to then have a belt which Joshua can milk for all the revenue he can. But Joshua's only fought once since then. He fought Brazil. Brazil would have taken probably two million. So Matchroom might have crawled themselves out of a hole slightly. What Matchroom need are two pay-per-view shows. One one just after the season starts again in September and another one in October to follow. So that's why Eddie was talking Brook in September, Eubank in October, or reversing it depending on who generated revenue. Brooke Golovkin will not be a blockbuster. It'll be an okay pay-per-view event. I don't think it's going to do stupid numbers and it won't do stupid money. What Eddie Hearn needs to close out the year in a very strong way is another Wembley show. And that's why he's talking about Joshua fighting in November. On Wednesday, and John will love this, I got to spend time with David Hay. He came down to our gym um, you know, charitable purposes, you know, delivered some goods. Really grateful for that. When I asked him about Shannon Briggs, he didn't say anything regarding the subject, but his demeanor told me that it's not a priority. I was, you know, when you get the sense from someone, are you hitting Joshua maybe a priority in November? I'm thinking Eddie Hearn has to have that. I don't see him being able to close off his accounts for this year as a success if he doesn't have. Joshua versus Hay. Um, it suits David because I don't think he can train much because look, you've got Shane in New York right now with Carl Frampton. Frampton yeah. and Conrad Cummings are out there. Um, then he's got admin to attend to, which is going to take him all the way through August into early September. So the Briggs fight can't happen in October because David won't get the, the time he needs in terms of sparring and that sort of one-to-one coaching. So now you're looking at November when Joshua's scheduled to fight. And if you look at the PR that's happening recently, you're seeing Hay and Joshua together more, which suggests that, and let's bear in mind, Joshua's a very controlled commodity. So there's a story, the seeds of the story look like they're being planted at the moment for that fight in November, because that's a fight that will do Wembley. Um, You could have that. You could then have... Wembley in November, though? That's madness. Mm. Not necessarily. (sighs) It's a gamble at the very least. Yeah. Well, the, the fight's big enough that everyone will want to watch it. No, I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm just saying I've seen British winter. weather, <laughs> <laughs> isn't it? It's- well, what other country, whichever. No, people, look, you get 80,000 watching England play Belarus in November. No, no, I agree. But you can, weather is more of a tricky uh, issue for an outdoor boxing event than it is a football match. Agreed. Um, Logistically. Flipping and go right, Millennium Stadium, similar yeah, sort of. Crowd. Yeah, I say that yeah. is the the other yeah. option, isn't so, it? It's, so what we're looking at is a stadium fight, Joshua versus Hey. I don't think anyone else has called this out anywhere in the media. It's not come from any exclusive. It is my guess based on the fact that David needs it revenue wise. Eddie needs it revenue wise. Makes sense. The fans want it. They want. Let's go back a step. Boxing's about passing the torch. 
Larry Holmes, Muhammad Ali. Ali had to pass the torch to Larry Holmes. Mike Tyson, Larry Holmes. Larry had to pass the torch to Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield had to pass the torch. And so it goes on. The torch always has to get passed. The problem with modern boxing is Mayweather never passed the torch. Pacquiao hasn't really passed the torch because his real meaningful defeat was to Mayweather. So what we need in boxing is someone to pass the torch. And that's what this fight will be about. You know, Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, Anthony Joshua, David Hay, those sorts of things. You know, you pass the torch and then you validate the young guy as a pay-per-view superstar. So am I right to take from that, well, that you'd back Joshua? Because surely if Joshua fights Hay and we go by what we've said in recent times, Hay's going to beat Joshua. And that doesn't really validate him then, does it? I, I back David Hay to win that. I don't think Joshua would disgrace himself in losing to David Hay. I think that would be a perfect time to then rebuild Anthony Joshua. You know, David will go off in a completely different direction. You rebuild Anthony Joshua, you can have a fight with a David Price, then go for another belt, maybe Deontay Wilder, who knows. But Anthony Joshua loses nothing in losing to David Hay. David Hay is a supreme talent. And can I just insert, you know, I know John likes to know about sartorial elegance. So he had a white V-neck t-shirt with a breast pocket on the left-hand side, wore some jeans and some trainers, very casual, you know, looked in decent shape. Lovely. I I thought you'd appreciate that, John, you know, very stylish man. Can I, like, if we're talking slightly, uh, you know, theories and making, you know, if we're kind of talking about not conspiracies, but what could be happening down the line. Going back to the fight we're talking about now, the the Golovkin Brook one, like I have a slight theory about it that actually this doesn't harm Chris Eubank Jr. at all in the long run, like which don't get me wrong, it's total bollocks and what have you. What's happened and Eubank looks an absolute mug out of it. We'll come on to that, I'm sure. Which one? <laughs> well, yeah, take your pick. <laughs> but talking about what Brook owes Eddie Hearn now. Golovkin's coming over here for the first time. This is Golovkin's introduction to the UK audience. So if he, which I think most of us, as we get nearer the time, we'll talk about it, but I'm sure most of us will predict that Golovkin absolutely obliterates Brooke. On his first trip over to the UK, he's going to go out there and smash to pieces one of the matchroom figureheads at the moment like i know you're saying earlier terry about like he's not the the kind of frontline soldier but he's still a matchroom world champion and they can make matchroom world champions look very legitimate with a big following behind him as well with a big following ish not the biggest but um golovkin goes out there golovkin wipes the floor with kelbrook now that introduces to a whole new casual pay-per-view audience golovkin who they probably didn't know that much about before Next year, you've then got this absolute, you know, to an extent, a promoter's dream, Chris Eubank Jr., who does his own self-promotion, love him or hate him, and a lot more will hate him right now than they did before, but he's a known quantity amongst both boxing fans and casual sports observers against a man who you've just introduced this year by absolutely smashing to pieces, Kel Brook. So you've suddenly generated the interest in Golovkin, even though he's not your fighter, and you make that into a bigger... Like, it's almost looking two steps down the line. I appreciate that. But that's my semi-theory on it, is that actually, Eubank Jr. looks a dick right now. People have short memories. Yes, he may go out and fight Adam Etches, whatever. But people will forgive him in 12 months' time if he takes that Golovkin fight. And at that point, Golovkin is a known quantity over in the UK. Eddie Hearn can make it bigger than what it was before Golovkin was known in the UK. 
and he's you know Brook loses nothing. He goes back down to welterweight with his IBF title. He loses to one of the pound for pound best in the world. That's fine. Nobody has an issue with that. In the meantime, Golovkin is now a known fighter in the UK, and they put him in with Chris Eubank Jr. to make a bigger fight than what it would have been now. So I don't think Eubank Jr. suffers. I agree entirely. Um, you think what Eubank Jr. gets by sitting this one out this time? He gets to watch Golovkin up close. He gets to watch Golovkin fight someone he has sparred himself. So Brook and Eubank Jr. have sparred numerous rounds together. So he actually gets to go, okay, I've got a yardstick here. In the same way Billy Joe Saunders was excited to watch Eubank Golovkin because it's a yardstick. You can measure your opponent. In the meantime, I'm sure Eddie Hearn will sweeten the deal and say, look, Junior, how about you fight Andy Lee? We can make the fight. We're friendly with Adam Booth. We can make the fight quickly. Andy Lee will fancy it because he thinks he's got the power to, to do some damage. Eubank Junior will fancy it because it's a legitimizing fight. It's, it sells well in the UK and it sells well in the States. That takes him through to the end of the year. Reputation, you know, strengthened because, of, well, actually, you fought some legitimate guys now. Well, a legitimate guy. Then you say, right, Golovkin Canelo, is that going to happen? No. Fine. Golovkin has to fight again. I think Golovkin has to fight twice this year, according to Abel Sanchez. So you can have an end of the year card, a post. Hey Joshua card, just to mop up the Christmas revenue, of Eubank Jr. maybe jumping in with Golovkin prior to the Golovkin-Canelo fight. So, there's revenue to be had everywhere. And I always say to fans, if you really want to know what's going to happen in boxing, work out what fights make the most money. Um, if everything goes the way we've just discussed it, you know Eddie Hearn will have a strong quarter four, make a stack load of money, everyone makes a stack load of money, and we're all happy. Yeah, no, I agree. I say it's a lot of fans criticising Eubank, myself included. You know, I've been very vociferous about it on on Twitter and things. Um, just, I suppose, I would say, look one step down the line. It may not be that Eubank is fighting Golovkin now, but think how much bigger Golovkin is going to be in the UK after he takes out Kel Brook. Kel Brook moves back down without losing anything, apart from, you know, a bit of a, a beating, which he's likely to take. And Eddie Hearn comes out of it with Golovkin introduced to the UK audience and in a position where they can sell him versus Eubank Jr., you know, either later this year or next year for big money. Like, Maybe it's a little bit conspiracy theory-ish, but uh, that's how I'd, I'd see it going. Does he? Does he not lose? Does Eubank not lose anything? Clearly, you've structured a situation where where he might not lose anything fight-wise. But would it, the fact that he hasn't been able to close out a deal, the fact that he's pondered around all the stupid little, almost insignificant aspects of the fight arrangement, does that not affect him in some way? It does. Um, it it makes him look bad when the details come out, but. Yeah, again, I'm not going to put my tin hat on here and start saying that everything's a conspiracy, but there's got to be a bad guy and there's got to be a good guy in these things. Now, in no way whatsoever on this planet is Golovkin ever going to be a bad guy. Like, Golovkin will turn up in his, his like, tunic top and he'll turn up saying everybody's a good boy and then he'll smash, he'll smash uh, Brook to pieces. So, he's never going to be the bad guy in this situation. Now, Eubank is a ready-made bad guy. And so when you come out and say Chris Eubank Sr. is the one dicking about with all this paperwork, we had it all signed off, we had it ready, and then Eubank Sr. has come in and made it all worse, that infuriates people. It infuriates everyone that actually you're not taking a fight because you can't pick who the commentator is or you can't pick 
the ticket pricing. That infuriates people that he's seen as ducking. It's frustrating because, let's look at it. This all reminds us of the World Wrestling Federation when we were younger, right? And it seems that Eddie Hearn has looked at the World Wrestling Entertainment as it is now. He sees they do revenues of around $700 million, which is 20 times what Matchroom does, with guys having make-believe fights. So what does Eddie do? He distills the formula. He says, right, in every situation, there has to be a good guy, there has to be a bad guy. I need a reason to love him. I need a reason to hate him. And I'll create those stories continuously. So I already know when I want Joshua to fight someone big. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manage all the steps between today and that point. So you have a whole story arc. You know, the Dillian White thing was set up that way as well. Yep. And you can see Eddie's doing that because he's realized that's how you sell merchandise. That's how you create heroes. That's how you get fans to flock in you give them a spectacle some lights you know maybe a little bit of music and that's how you do it and you have a culmination of a storyline yeah and then you start again with another one yep and it takes the fans for idiots because the truth is if we really look at this the ass in all of this is Golovkin you know why isn't he moving up if you can't get the fights at 160 admit it move upwards because let's be honest Eubank Jr Billy Joe Saunders Andy Lee Peter Quillen, Danny Jacobs, even those smaller guys, the Andrades, the Charlo brothers, are all there going, if we ignore Golovkin long enough, he has no choice but to move up and we can all have great fights. Yeah, but I mean, Golovkin, you know, he said about fighting Canelo next September. Now, what if Hearn has come along and said to him, okay, you fight Canelo next September, what we'll do is we'll fill your diary between now and then. Like, you haven't got to do any work, we'll fill your diary for you. We'll give you Kell Brook, We'll build you in the UK. You can come over and be the whole good boy routine, which I don't think is an act of any sort. I think he is just a, a nice bloke who's a vicious animal. He can come over here, fight Brooke, come back, fight Eubank. Like, fill his diary for him. So he hasn't got to worry about moving up in weight division or anything like that. Like, if, if Hearn is offering him, like, a ready-made package, take on two of our lads and I can make you millions in the process... He's not going to turn that down whilst he waits for Canelo to, you know, size up. So, yeah, uh, to me, there is, it's going to sound very conspiracy-like, but to me, it's a, it's a storyline. It's making Chris Eubank Sr. look as bad as they have done makes Chris Eubank Jr. by proxy look like a terrible, terrible person who ducks everyone. So when it comes to the time when they actually do sign that paperwork off, then it'll be a surprise to everyone and everyone will be excited about it. Just to put some meat on the bones of that, I realise that a lot of our listeners are pretty well um, versed on the, on the goings-on, but what I was referring to was the fact that Eubank Senior was um, in an interview with Eddie Hearn. He was, <clears throat> Eddie Hearn had said that he'd been looking for promoter's rights and what Martin alluded to was the fact that he wanted to adjust ticket prices and make them, as Eddie Hearn said, too expensive. Um, and he wanted to, say, dick about with all the promoters stuff and Eddie Hunter said this is our name, we built it up over many years and it's it's you know, it's, we don't wanna we don't wanna put that at risk. So that is that is what I was alluding to with the old uh, with the whole Eubank. But you okay, but then you're Chris Eubank Senior and you're there going, But my son Christopher Christopher the greatest boxer ever impression again. Shocking impression, I did. <laughs> but the fact is look, you you've got Chris Senior and he's saying, Look, I think my son's the best thing since sliced bread. He's fighting the pound for pound number one. Why are you charging 40 pounds a ticket? 
this is the biggest deal in British boxing. You should be charging £55 a ticket as a minimum. Maybe that's what he said. We don't know what was said. But you can imagine, you know, Chris Eubank Sr. has been around the game. He was always cynical about the business side of the sport. And you can see that in his son. He's probably just saying to his son, don't take in everything you're fed because they might not always have your best interests at heart. Yeah, and he's had his bluff called, if that is the case. Yeah. You know, it's... As did Vargas. Yeah. Um, I made this point on Twitter the other day. <laughs> Why doesn't Eubank Senior, assuming he's got some money or can get some money behind him in some way, just get his fucking promoter's license? If you're not happy with the terms of everyone else, so you've left Warren, you've dealt with Hennessy, you've left Matchroom already, and now you're back. Like, nobody meets... Nobody ticks every box that the Eubank camp have, clearly. Just get your own one, mate. Like... Just set up or team up with David Hay or whatever. Imagine if you could have like a, a pairing of David Hay and Chris Eubank for a short while. Like of making a promotional team. You haven't got to have a stable or anything like that. You can bring fighters in to, to make up shows. But I don't understand. Like he must be, if you take it at face value of what Hearn says, which I don't particularly, but if you take it at face value, Eubank Senior must be an absolute nightmare to work with. I understand what you're saying about you know you if it's his son going out there yes you want to make the most money out of it you you know you want the pricing to reflect what the fight is but that's not your job <laughs> you know that's the promoter's job that's the person who's putting the show on I can understand why Hearn would tell him to fuck off frankly um, you know they're the ones that have got to put their name to it I can understand that so if all of these things don't add up for senior. I don't understand why he hasn't just gone off and got his own promoter's license. They're not that hard to come by, especially if you've got a big name like Chris Eubank, and do things your own way. Like, if you're so unhappy with the way everybody else tries to stitch you up and whatever and stitch your family up, just do it yourself. All right, so let's talk about this Brook GGG fight coming up. We, I think you'd be forgiven for expecting Golovkin to win. How could Brook win? Um, so I've been watching a lot of Jersey Joe Walcott, a lot of Ezra Charles and a lot of Archie Moore recently as I get ready for the new season. And what it would need Brooke to do is revert back to some of the old school tactics. So one of the ones that's often forgotten is the catch and shoot. So Golovkin, you know, if you, if you watch the David Lemieux fight, he used his jab a lot, but Lemieux never actually controlled his jab, even though to us, you could have put your hand in front of your face and caught the jab. So if Brooke can do that, put his hand between Golovkin's fist and his own face and fire a double jab back, not just a single jab, a double jab back, you can keep Golovkin off balance. If you can then roll out, slide out, get out the way again, re-engage in the same way, you can keep him off balance. The problem you have with Golovkin is, it seems whatever style he's faced with, he finds a solution to. So Willie Monroe Jr. tried the same approach. So he tried to be slick. Eventually Golovkin closed him down and hit him, and he fell over. Lemieux tried to be the tough guy, and we know what happened to him. Curtis Stevens tried to out-muscle him. That didn't work. Even when you're defensively sound, I don't know if you guys remember the, I think it was the Rubio knockout, where if you watch... That's the overhand right, yeah, wasn't it? It was the left hook, over, literally over his guard. His, oh. gu his guard was in, in... It was textbook. The way he defended himself was textbook. That chopping shot that he's got. Literally came over the glove, hit him on top of the forehead and said, yeah. go to sleep. So it's very hard to keep Golovkin off you. It will be clever things like, you know, catching double jab, shooting the double jab to the body and sliding out. The thing is, you can't be in front of Golovkin. You have to keep throwing that jab in the way, 
get him off balance when he's adjusting, catch him with a right hand, left hook, move off again. Can you do that for 12 rounds against Golovkin? <laughs> Gone. I think the biggest problem, like, if, if you're the Ingles preparing Kel Brook for this, you haven't seen a weakness in Golovkin. Like, and I'm talking back to his 250-odd amateur fights as well, through to his professionals, there hasn't been a weakness that you can see in him. So how do you exploit anything? Now, Kel Brook, yes, he's a good fighter. He's a good welterweight. He's possibly the best welterweight in the world, arguably. He's not a middleweight. Like, yes, he's a big welterweight. They've always said this. He could move up to 154 pounds without too much issue. This is 160 pounds. Like, there's no catchweight bollocks going on with this. There's no Canelo-style bringing the weights together. You're taking on the best fighter in his division, arguably one of the best pound-for-pound in the world, and you're jumping up two weight divisions against somebody that you haven't seen a weakness against, unless they have seen some magical weakness. But you've got a man who is accustomed to fighting at that weight and will spend the entire 12 rounds, if required, just walking you down, using that lateral movement left and right. So whatever you do, he just seems to like smile about it in a similar vein to Kovalev in certain ways. You know, the talk about Kovalev Ward coming up, like that's so different because Ward is an accomplished fighter up at that weight. He's a big man. This is very different. This is, you know, Brooks just taking a punt, isn't he? Like that's basically what it comes out. He's taking a punt that he can do something, and I don't see any way whatsoever that it's even a close matchup. I just think Golovkin is going to smack. Like Brook may well last four or five rounds, but he's going to get pummeled. And, like, Golovkin isn't necessarily a one-punch knockout artist either. He's not going to just take you out in one punch. He's going to hurt you for a lot of rounds. If I was the Ingles, I'd honestly get the towel sponsored now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it may not be that you end up seeing, you know, Brook sparked out like Khan was against Canelo. It's just that you're going to see him take a prolonged beating, if necessary. Um I, I, going back to your original question, how does Brook win this? He doesn't win this. There is no way he wins this, in my view. Like, I, I, I can't see. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't dull my interest in the fight because I want to see Golovkin over on these shores. I want to see Golovkin at the O2. I want all those things, so I'm interested in it. I'll be more interested when in six months' time they sign the Eubank-Golovkin fight because it's somebody at his weight. Um, and that will interest me a bit more. But the novelty factor of it is huge, and that, that interests me. Okay, I want to move on to a listener's question. Not prematurely, but it's because it relates to this conversation. And I think it's a decent direction for us to go with. It's from Sam Khan at Blessed With Work. And she asks, who would fare better against Triple G, Khan or Brooke? Um, given that you've just said that Khan, uh, that Brooke's going to really struggle, uh, Khan looked somewhat, somewhat measured when he was fighting... Canelo, but Canelo just eventually just took him apart. So would the same thing happen with 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 Triple G? Um, it's a tricky one. If you're if you're Golovkin and you're fighting Brook, what you're saying is I don't mind losing the first four rounds. I'm going to get you eventually. So whatever happens in the first four rounds is utterly irrelevant. It's what happens from rounds four to seven that I care about. The fight's not going past round seven. It's the same thing Canelo had with Khan. He he let Khan win the first couple of rounds. And then if you watch that fight again, he started to jab him to the body. And what that did was it let Khan know how hard Canelo hit. And then Khan didn't want to engage anymore. So if you're saying who would fare better against Golovkin, just from the reaction to Canelo, who doesn't hit as hard as Golovkin, 
you've got to say Brook for two reasons. One, Brook's physically stronger. Um, he looks more durable. He looks like he, well, we know he has a better chin, but Brook's a thinking fighter as well. So he can make adjustments in the ring, whereas you don't, you don't ever believe Khan can make adjustments. So it, you watch it. If the jab to the body is not working for Brook, he'll switch to the jab to the head. He might come in with the uppercut. He'll make small adjustments. <laughs> That's just, you know, changing the direction you piss into the fire from, isn't it? Really? <laughs> you just, I don't, I, yeah. Which I don't one would do better is almost an irrelevance. Like neither of them are going to win. Which one's going to lose the least badly? Yeah. I don't know, I suppose. Look, um, you have a cat and a dog and a tank driving towards them. Who's going to survive being run over better? <laughs> you know how the movie ends. So did you hear that, Sam Khan? Your question was irrelevant. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, 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 no. We haven't said that. No, we didn't say that. We love Sam. And, you know, when we have our O2 boxing get-together, man, Sam, guest of honour. <laughs> Okay, um, another question, right, actually, um, from Scott McGee. He asks, how do you see the undercard for the Golovkin-Brook fight um, going and what will the sales box office be like? Undercard-wise, let's not expect an awful lot, I suppose, is the answer. You <laughs> Normally, you'd end up with kind of ticket sellers and things on these. Do they necessarily need ticket sellers for this event? I think it, it sells itself. I think it will sell the O2. I've no doubt about that. Um, they're releasing ticket details this week sometime, I believe. It's a huge... Like, it will sell out. It's like a Joshua fight to an extent. So you may see a few, a handful of ticket sellers on there, but it's going to be the young prospects, I would suspect. Like, they're not going to invest much money into an undercard for this because there's no word yet on what Golovkin is getting paid to come over here. I don't know. You're probably looking maybe... If they were talking Vargas was going to be getting £2 million... You've got to think Golovkin's maybe three million. I don't know, somewhere around that. Um, seems reasonable. Uh, Brooke, God knows what you're paying him to go in and do this. Not a clue. Uh, presumably more than what they were going to be paying him for Vargas, which they were saying was under the two million pound mark, like significantly less than what Vargas was going to get. So, yeah, it's a big investment in terms of a headline act. What you're going to see in terms of the undercard. They'll probably do the typical matchroom. I guess they might even shove on another world title fight, a Jamie McDonald title fight or something that nobody really cares about particularly, but they can make it up to a two-title fight card. Um, just don't expect it to be full of like interesting, evenly matched fights, I suppose. It'll be a long card. It'll be... If you go back to Frotch Groves 2 and how long that card was, like started at stupid o'clock and finished at stupid o'clock. I have a feeling Eddie will do that, where he'll just kitchen sink it. Um, so you can expect O'Hara Davis on the card. You might see an Isaac Chamberlain on there, you know, just to 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 pique the London interest. Might throw Ted Cheeseman on there just to get the the Millwall crowd in there because they're quite vociferous. And then you'd want guys on there who you're trying to push over. So maybe, oh, what's the lad's name from Leeds? Warrington. Oh, yeah, you just mentioned it. Yeah, Josh Warrington. Would you put a Selby on there? Maybe. But you essentially want those sorts of people. You know, guys who you can you can expose to the public in a meaningful fight and then make money with them down the line. So look at this as a massive shop window for matchroom fighters, both, you know, rookies and experienced alike. Yeah. Okay, last question then from James Sunderland at Jim008. He asks, 
Do you guys think that Kel is really avoided that much, or is it just a case of timing, other fighters tied up with fights? And is this completely different to Khan Alvarez weight wise, as Khan is made of glass as is made of glass? And I think we've kind of answered that one actually, but let's go with the first one. Yeah, he does say and was initially a lightweight as well, which makes a big difference. Yeah, we we briefly spoke about that before. You you said that he's but I, I mean, we kind of dissected the, their chances between them, and with the cat and the dog scenario that uh, that Terry brought up, then what else is needs to be said? So <laughs> let's see if he's got another colourful metaphor for Kel getting avoided. Um, or not? Kel Brook is like the attractive girl who has a psychopath older brother. That's how I look at Kel Brook. You know, everything makes sense when you look at it. But there's too much danger behind the scenes. So when when Garcia looks at who he should fight, for his legacy, beating Kel Brook would be incredible. But he then goes, well, hold on, Kel Brook's an IBF champion, so he doesn't have to leave home. You know, he doesn't have to leave home. So I might have to go over there. Do I want to face the judges there? No. Do I want to deal with the times? No. I'd quite like to stay in my comfort zone. Well, you know what? I can fight Thurman here. No drama. The dynamic changes if you move Kel Brook to America. Then we'll know if he's being avoided because there's nothing for him in the UK. Whereas in America, all the 147 fights he needs can happen there. If Kel spent a year or two in America and didn't get any of these fights, we'd know he was being avoided. But right now, no one wants to come over here because the tax regime is not favorable. So, you know, Danny Garcia gets paid $5 million to box in the UK. He will lose a fair proportion of that, maybe even 40% to UK taxes. Why on earth would you come to the UK for that? Yeah. I mean, let's also add on some of it is self-inflicted. So, you know, the <laughs> he's pulled out of fights with Bradley. He's pulled out of fights with Alexander. He's pulled out of fights with Chavez. So if you're one of the top names in the division and you're looking at unifying... And you know Kelbrook is a risky fighter. Like nobody's, nobody's querying, is Kelbrook a good fighter? Yes, he is. Really, do you need the pissing about in terms of the risk of it being called off? I know fights get called off, that's fine, but that's three high-profile world title fight or opportunities that he's had that have all fallen by the wayside. If you're one of the top fighters out there, do you need... I mean, when you look at it in terms of what you were saying, Terry, with coming over to England, giving over a lot of your money to the tax man, dealing with all the stuff of being an away fighter... Add on top of that, the risk of you could go through a camp and then it doesn't happen because Kel Brook has this horrible habit of, of not being prepared, etc. for fights. Is he avoided? Possibly. Is it his own fault? Maybe. Let's go back in time to 1980. Young boxer Sugar Ray Leonard, 1976 gold medalist. Management team offer him a fight with Aaron Pryor. 1976 Golden Gloves champion. Probably should have boxed in the Olympics. Fantastic talent. Um, you have two of the leading lights beneath, you know, 150 pounds, essentially. Aaron Pryor destroying everyone in his wake. Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, the darling of America. Aaron Pryor says no to the fight at half a million dollars. They offer him the fight again in, I think it's 1981 or 1982. For 750000 no. What happens after that? Detached retina for Sugar Ray Leonard steps away from the ring for a while. 
Aaron Pryor never fights a meaningful fight. So he doesn't get to fight Thomas Hearns. Doesn't get to fight Roberto Duran. Doesn't get to fight Marvin Hagler. And he, talent-wise, he belonged in that conversation, but he never got those fights. So when you look at his legacy, no one really knows who he is. And, you know, for all the guys out there, go and, go and do a bit of research in Aaron Pryor. He was an interesting fighter because he was the first fighter prior to Manny Pacquiao where people were like, this guy has to be on drugs for the way that he boxes. But he, fantastic talent. A guy boxing just bypassed because he didn't understand that when the opportunities come, you have to make him work by hook or by crook. Yeah, I think this for for Brooke, you know, assuming this fight goes ahead and there aren't any problems in camp and whatever, this shows that he's willing to take risks, he's willing to take fights. It possibly opens up the opportunity for the Thurman, for the Garcia fights, etc. Nobody can say that he's ducking those fighters if he's willing to go in, willing or under duress, to go in with, uh, with Golovkin. So, yeah, maybe... You know, in terms of his legacy, this fight does nothing for him if he loses. It doesn't matter. Um, and maybe it opens up those opportunities in the future for him. Okay, so another fight that got announced this week is David Allen v. Dillian White. Uh, we spoke to David Allen a little while ago, and uh, yeah, this is what he had to say. David! Hello? Hello, mate. How you doing? No, I'm all right. You? You out exercising? I'm just getting into the car now. Or just uh, uh, yeah, we got um, myself and Andy and, and Terry with us. So oh yeah, excellent. So yeah, so in terms of like your big news this week, then yeah. you and Dillian, how are you feeling about it? Feel all right. Just I don't know what. Like Friday night, I was just sat in the house on my own, bored. <laughs> I just thought, you know what? I'm gonna fight Dillian White. <laughs> It just came to me, like, I just sat there, and I just thought, you know what, fuck this, I'm not having him, like, I'm not having, I'm not missing the chance of fighting him, so I just, I just sat there, and I just contacted my manager, I just said, I just said, listen, if this fight can happen, just make it happen, because I'm just ready, I'm ready, like, I'm not, maybe if I'm not physically ready, but mentally, I'm never more ready in my life to fight anyone. Yeah. Never, ever. Yeah. So, I mean, um... You were saying before about you, you weren't going to take it on three weeks' notice. It was too short. And then uh, with the whole Brook Triple G stuff, was that what's kind of prompted you to, uh, as you say, bored, sat around, have a go at it? Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons. Obviously, the Sheffield bill not happening anymore. So, you know, I could have fought Doncaster down September 3rd. But that doesn't excite me. That doesn't excite me in the slightest. Uh, yeah. Dillian White excites me. Dillian Wyatt leaves Arena live on Sky Sports. That excites me. The money's not great, but the money's obviously better than not getting paid at all. Yeah. The, obviously, people think I'm doing it for the money. If I'm doing it for the money, I'd, I'd, I'd wait. I'd have waited it out. I'd have got a few more wins, and I'd have got paid three or four times more. Yeah. But it's just a lot of the reason is just like just boredom. I'm just ready. I'm just, <laughs> literally like I'm not doing anything else. I'm not. I'm not like ridiculously crazy been training mad fit ready but like I'm not in fit for the first time in my life I'm not like an absolute mess I've got three weeks I've got another two weeks training and sparring and stuff and Dillian White is average <laughs> so like he's average isn't it? everyone thinks he's world class so if I lose everyone's be like oh he lost Dillian White he's world class but obviously he's not world class and I want to be him so I'm not that bothered Hi David it's Andy um, so what what um, 
makes you think you can beat him? What gives you that confidence? Because his best win is Brian Minto, right? <laughs> and Brian Minto is, is, is like the same level as, as Jason Gavin. He's beat Costa Jr. Um, and I'm struggling to think anyone else has even beat. No. Back here in. Like, the Frenchman I boxed will be the best win on his record. And the Frenchman I boxed isn't even very good. <laughs> like... I've done 500 rounds with Joshua. He never put a dent in me. So, like, Dillian is strong. He's very strong and very tough, and he punches very hard. But I've got the best chin in the business. I'm not going anywhere. He's strong, but I'm very physically strong as well. I look about 12 years old. I don't look very hard. But <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am a tremendously hard man. And you can ask anyone in boxing that. I might not look here. I might look, like, I might look I'm too pretty to be hard, but I am. And he's going to get a shock. Because when he's hitting me and he's not bothering me in like four or five rounds going and he's gassing like he went against Bakkerin and I start hitting him back. I'm not the biggest punch in the world. I, I hit hard, but I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a knockout puncher, I admit that. But when I start hitting him back and and he's not mentally prepared for me to start hitting him back, he thinks I'm going to be gone in two or three rounds. He's, he's, he's going to think, oh my God, what is this, what is this young man doing? And so, I'm going to so take him out. Are you envisaging the fight going 12 rounds then? I'm envisaging... I'm, I can't even get it out, but whatever I'm thinking, I'm seeing. I'm I'm going to stop him late. I'm going to grind him. I'm just going to grind him down. My hands are going to be up around my ears. I'm just going to walk him down. I'm going to soak up what he's got to give. And he's going to fall apart. That's how I see it. He, he's fitter than me in a physical sense. In terms of he's been training. I've not really been doing that much training. But I come from a background of track and field and the football and stuff like that I'm a very physically fit man and I fight I can, I can just keep going all day long it, it's not spectacular people are thinking this is going to be the greatest fight ever it's not the greatest fight ever it's not going to be the greatest fight ever at all if I win this fight I'm, I'm coming to fight and I'm going to I'm going to be I've given it a go I'm going to be swinging I'm going to be windmilling like Deontay Wilder like area, area level Deontay Wilder's business right now. but like it's going to be ugly. I'm going to maul him. I'm just going to punch him on the back of the head. I'm going to punch him low. I'm going to, it's going to be a dirty fight if we're doing it back. So, like, I don't want people to be expecting Gatty Ward because it's not. It's going to be ugly. But I'm going to get the job done and that's all that matters. And then me and Chisora will be even uglier than that. So, yeah. So, so David, it's Terry here. Quick question. What does your camp look like coming up? So, you haven't got much time. So, what will you be trying to, to get right before the fight? No. Who will well, you I've be got, aspiring? Do you know that yet? Or is it pretty much, we'll just see what we can do? I've got three weeks left, and Dominic Ingle's my trainer now, but he goes away with Kel next week. So I've got one week left with Don, and I've got two weeks. Um, I think I think Steffi Bull may train me for the last two weeks. Um, or I think Steffi Bull may train me for the last two weeks. Sparring. Um, I, think, I think I've got some sparring. I think... So yeah, this is again, I'm getting Dillian White some false confidence. I want Dillian White to be confident because I just want to see the look on his face when he stands up after round four off his stool and I'm just stood there looking all docile and just 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 my usual face. And I want to see him gasping for air. And, and you're, you're expecting him to underestimate you, aren't you? He is, he is underestimating me. I know for a fact he is because he believes he's world class, but I believe, I believe he is the 2016 Matt Skelton. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Not an insult because Matt Skelton obviously boxed for a world title. I think Dillian White 
he's not world class because he doesn't have certain world class attributes. He's not even the most experienced fighter in the world. Neither am I. I've only had 10 amateur and 10 professional, but he didn't have many amateur fights. He's only had 17 professional fights and he's stopped most of them. So, you know, people, I say it for what it is. Eddie Hearn can sell it as, as the biggest grudge match going between Thingy, but with two inexperienced heavyweights who just like to have a bit of a row. And, and, and to be fair, Dillian's pretty funny and, and I'm even funnier than him. So, <laughs> it, that's what it is. I see, I see it for what it is. It's going to be an ugly, it's going to be a good fight because. I genuinely do want to punch his head off, and I know for a fact he feels the same, but whether we're good enough to do that to each other, I don't know. I think one of us will just fall over due to exhaustion later in the fight, and I think it'll be Dillian White. <laughs> in terms of, um, you're saying about the rounds you've done with Joshua in the past, yeah. does it give you confidence, the work you've done with Joshua, and the way that Joshua dispatched White in the end? Not really, because like, styles make fights and all that boxing business, but if you ask Anthony Joshua the winner who will win out of me and Dillian White he will say David Allen beat, will start, beat Dillian White every day of the week I know that for a fact so everyone in boxing that I've spoke to regarding this fight since it's been made and even before I'm not going to mention names because they'll not want me to say but everyone I spoke to if I take what I do in sparring into the ring I beat Dillian White every day of the week yeah but but um We'll see. Like I say, I, I, I see the fight for what it is. I think Dillian thinks he's going to come in and wipe me out in a round or two because I've not boxed anybody and he's seen me fight Jason Gavin and and, and, and that. And I've seen Dillian Spar Klitschko and he looked really good, but I don't believe he can take that into the ring for real because I don't think he's got the experience to do so. Like, I haven't got the experience to take into the ring what I do in the sparring either, so I think we're in the same boat. Is this for the British in the end? Did it? Uh, did they sort that out? It's for the WBC Inter- International WBC, I don't know, it's a nice belt though, it's a green one, it's nice. <laughs> it is. I think it's 12 rounds and the British, I think they're still trying to do it, but the board knocked me back for the British, yeah. so I don't see why they changed their mind now, nothing's really changed, I've not, I've not gained any experience overnight, so uh, it's for the WBC International. You know, if it's for the British, then that's great, but I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very confident that it will be, to be honest. Yeah. It's Terek, and a quick one. So, after the Dillian White fight, what happens? I know you did the interview with Ty and Booth, and basically what you were trying to say there, if I read it correctly, was, look, I've had it awkward before. I've had to juggle jobs and training. Now yes. this is the first time I'm able to be a professional fully. So what's the what's the full-term or the long-term plan? Is it to then say, look, here here's a trainer I need to take me forward. This is who I'm going to dedicate my time to, and then just go from there? Or what's the long-term view? Well, obviously, I beat Dillian White. Let's say I beat Dillian White. I take, I, I should take over where I should go into position that Dillian's in. I should be looking at fights with Chisora and, and fighters like that. Because if I beat Dillian White, I'm not going to go back to doing four rounds at Doncaster Down because I don't like it. I can't be bothered. <laughs> so, I'm going to like, hopefully, I'm going to move into his position whether I do or not. I don't know. I should do it. I'm a handsome man. I'm very remarkable. Like, <laughs> I should be like I should be on Sky Sports all the time. I'm like Anthony Agogo, but like, but but better fighter. So. Um, and then, then another one, um, the Fury camp. Yeah. What was it like being in the Fury camp? Because I watched Tyson, and I think many people do. And he has a very old school throwback style, and I was wondering, is that what Peter preaches when he's got people in camp? Is it to have that that really old school 
you know, not necessarily two hands up and being stiff, just being yeah. quite loose and being, you know, good movement and all that sort of thing. Yeah, Peter's, um, you know, Peter reminds me a lot of, because I started with Brendan Ingle when I was younger, when I started fighting for the first time. And I think he's got a lot of the same ideas as Brendan. I don't know whether, I think he may have copied a lot of Brendan's ideas. Um, so, yeah, Peter is all about that relaxed style. He wants you to be as awkward as possible, but it's different. You is six foot six and Tyson's six foot nine and they've got really long arms, but I'm six foot three and I've got short arms and stuff. So I was never going to be able to box like that. But as far as the Fury camp goes, you know, there were some of the best times of my life and the worst times of my life. I was living in a box room in Bolton. It was horrible, but you, there's not many nicer people knocking about than Tyson, Peter and Yui Fury. So on the whole, it was good. And, and Peter's, Peter's just, he's got some, you know, some, he's just got some great ideas, you know, he's, uh, and Tyson's obviously got the talent. He, he can just, he just uses them ideas and, and he's just the best fighter in the world, isn't he? So, yeah. So does this mean next three weeks and there's no Toby Carveries, David? Yeah, yeah, I've got a, I've got a dietitian on board now. Oh, yeah. right, so you're going full in for this one. It's, uh... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's serious. This is serious now. I've got a dietitian. I do weights now. Uh, I run now. I'm going to spar. I've got one sparring partner lined up, possibly. It's not 100%, but I believe. And, and he's one of the best fighters in the world, so... Oh, right. Yeah, I think... I'm confident about this fight. I've never been more confident about a fight in my life. I fought some horrible... Some of the worst journeymen you've ever seen in your life. And they were terrible. But I felt <laughs> confident. I'm more confident about beating Dillian White than I was Laszlo Patsilli. <laughs> That's how I feel about this fight, so... Is that also partly based off of how bad White looked in his last fight? I, I thought Dillian looked all right in his last fight because I know what fighting cruiserweights... Like, I've sparred a lot of cruiserweights and I know how hard it is because they're just faster than us. And Dillian White's slow anyway, painfully slow. <laughs> so a cruiserweight is going to make him look bad anyway. Yeah. So And Dillian... I'm Dillian White's dream. I'm just going to stand there and he's just going to punch me in the face. So... <laughs> He's gonna love. He's gonna love me. It's gonna be a different fight. I, I don't take. I'm just so confident about this fight because, like, I'm delusional about my own abilities in certain areas. I'm just that. I, no man is gonna put me down and keep me down. And he can't do 12 rounds at a pace that I can do. And that is as simple as that. He can't stop me, and he ain't gonna do 12 rounds. So. Whether he, whether he collapses on the floor out of exhaustion or not, I will win this fight. And I'm and I'm just I'm just know it. I know it. Thanks. And did I say you've got some new sponsors, David? Do you want to give them a shout out? Yep. I've got Front End Lab. Uh, Luke Costas, yep. He he's 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 involved now, he's a new sponsor. Uh Shaka the Bucky Smacker, the man in the know regarding horses and things. Right. So, Look, David, you're a gentleman, mate. We'll leave you to it, but thank you so much for your time this evening. Anytime, mate. Thank you. Excellent. All right, thanks a lot for your time, David. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Right. Really appreciate Cheers. that. Good Bye. luck. Good luck, mate. Bye. 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 So there we go. That was David Allen commenting on the Dillian White uh, fight. Yeah, and that's coming up uh, July 30th on what is a, a very, very good bill, actually. Probably one of the best domestic um, standard TV shows that Sky have put on in, in quite a while, actually, up in Leeds. It's headlined with Warrington versus Patrick Highland. So underneath that, you've then got David Allen uh, versus Dillian White, which 
I mean, the build-up to that will be brilliant. Like the press conferences, you can hear from that. Like David Allen's quite a, a well thought out, well spoken, quite amusing bloke. Uh, Dillian White is a fucking lunatic. He came across really well, didn't he, in the interview? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you know, Dillian White is a live wire. So like putting those two together, they've really had some social media interaction. It, putting them together in press conferences will be fun. Then on the undercard of it, you've got you know lots of other uh, other fighters on there. Luke Campbell's on there, I think. Uh, Tommy Martin, uh, loads of others. So July thirtieth one is actually a really good season ender for uh, Sky. Clearly, a situation of needing to get various fighters out before the end of the season, um, so that you have that August break. Yeah, and for any boxing fans out there, and Leeds is an incredible night out on a Saturday. So, you know, you do the walk from the from the isn't the O2 the first point arena? Never. Right. Yeah. Direct. Yeah, first direct arena, just walk down the hill, you're bang in town. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. So if you're a boxing fan and you're, you're anywhere nearby, I mean, make, make sure you get up there and you're going to enjoy yourself. Okay, so we're going to move on to some amateur stuff with Terry. Now you told me that it was civil war in amateur boxing. Do you want to tell me about that? Yes. So those of you well versed in the amateur scene will know you know, most of the stuff you do as a club goes through your local and regional amateur boxing associations, which you've always fed into the England setup. So what's happening now is the England scene, so England boxing, essentially the governing body in England, would like to control much more of the landscape. So in terms of clubs paying money, the finances behind it, they want to control far more of that. And a lot of the old school administrators in the regions are annoyed because you know they say they need to control that otherwise what's the point in having them a lot of people in the clubs will level allegations of financial mismanagement you know just general disaffection you know we're, we're living in an age where i can bank online using my mobile phone yet i still have to go through all these admin hurdles you know to get fighters registered to get fights arranged and, you know, the clubs are frustrated because what we'd like is something centralised so we could actually network outside of our regions. So there's a massive battle of con- for control between the regions and England boxing, which is one source of the problem. The other source of the problem essentially is Team GB are now looking in terms of developing their own channel where they say, actually, we might just select our own boxers from a younger age and just run them through our system. You know, I don't think they have that much confidence in what's being produced in the clubs you know the adjustment from you know regular club boxer to gb boxer is becoming bigger and bigger so the question is you know much like eddie hearn do i just in-house talent development so if you do that you kill amateur boxing one fell swoop the old school guys are saying you know boxing amateur clubs produce the fighters that will go into gb gb is saying we're not necessarily happy with what we're getting what we'd like to be able to do is select, almost create model boxers, people who, you know, relatively tall, relatively lean, can hold muscle mass well, can be coached well, and just run that through their own system. And if they did that, they'd essentially kill amateur boxing. You'd force people to go into the pros far younger, because what's the point in boxing as an amateur, other than to get experience, but after 30 bouts, you're not going to learn much more. So it's interesting times, and I think we do need to see how this plays out, because it's a fight for the heart and the soul of the sport. So what you're saying about breeding them, it's almost like that um, Steve Redgrave prior to the London 2012, where uh, 
he put together his um, his system whereby anyone that played sport to a decent level as over six foot two um, was, and there were various various uh, points to meet. If you met all of them, you could go along and trial for Steve Redgrave, and then they'd hand you off to a sport. Uh, I guess it is, you know, it's filtering out those that are going to be super athletes from those that aren't going to be. It's a very Eastern European model, and I'm not surprised Steve Redgrave, Steve Redgrave follows it, seeing as Jürgen Grobler was from East Germany, and, you know, he's notorious for how he seemed to improve British boxing. talent. <laughs> so, so if you look at the Bulgarian model, what, what, what Bulgarian sports did, particularly weightlifting, is they said, you have to tick all of these boxes to become a weightlifter for us. Unlike the Russians, the Russians said we'll take anyone and turn them into Olympic level weightlifters, and it seems GB are going down that route of saying, you know, we want model boxers. It's worrying, but it goes back to something we discussed about George Foreman, and I remember saying this: one of the biggest changes in boxing is actually kids not doing manual labor because now you have children growing up playing Playstations, you know, wrapped in cotton wool by their parents, quite rightly too, because no one wants any harm to come to their kid. But if you go back to the era of your Joe Frazier's where they were working in cotton plantations or George Foreman, you know, these guys who had to do manual labor when they were young and play sport as well. What they, what it meant was by the age 12, physically, their level of conditioning, their level of strength for their age was superior to what we're currently having now. And I think that's where we're suffering as a sport. And this is why we're we're losing out to the Eastern Europeans in boxing. You know, guys like Kovalev, I don't imagine were playing PlayStations when they were kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the same as a football argument, isn't it? That you don't have kids out playing on the streets yeah. like you did 20 years ago when I was growing up as a kid. Um, you yeah. know, it doesn't happen that much now. And so, ultimately, the sports will, will suffer because of it. Or you spend hundreds of millions of pounds on a special academy in the centre of Britain for well, a load of shit, basically. Anyway, yeah. and, and a load of endocrinologists who seem to have taken hold in every aspect of British sport. Okay, are we finished? Are we ready to wrap up, um, aside from argue the inarguable? Are you ready? I'm done. Okay, let's move on to argue the inarguable. Right, Terry. Are you ready? Here we go, 30 seconds. To answer the question, or the, the to argue the point, with Khan and Brooke both moving up, all that's left now is for Mayweather to come out of retirement to prove himself at heavyweight. We saw what Mayweather did to the big show at WrestleMania, and we saw what he did prior to that when he actually <laughs> broke his nose. Um, <laughs> let's be absolutely clear, Mayweather fears no man. Um, what, he only fought at welterweight to make the most money. That was the only way he could get his nine-figure payday. So you move him up to heavyweight. Now that you have Anthony Joshua, that's another nine-figure payday. I'm sure Joshua would like the challenge. Um, I expect the shoulder roll to be really effective taking this thing out of Anthony Joshua's straight right hand. Um, Joshua might worry that he might not be able to see him, <laughs> seeing as Mayweather's at his waist. But well yeah, why not have Mayweather do that? And he, you know, in fact, put Mayweather in the Olympics too. Let him just clean up. I think I need to extend this to a minute for you both because you seem to be... No, 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 let's hold fire. <laughs> Fucking big show. <laughs> Jesus. Right. For you, Martinez. Let's roll. Golovkin is overrated. Brooke is effectively taking a tune-up fight. Which is absolutely right, because what you've got is Golovkin is a come-forward fighter um, with a good amount of power, but not one-punch knockout power. Who does that sound like? That sounds like, to me, Amir Khan. 
So, we all know that he's been calling out Amir Khan forever long. So, what he's doing, Amir Khan went up to middleweight to fight Canelo. So, he's taking on now a middleweight to get ready for middleweight Amir Khan. So, next year at Wembley, expect to see at middleweight, if not super middleweight, and maybe even light heavy, Brook versus Khan, battle of the fatties. <laughs> Let's roll. Let's do that. Battle of the fatties. That would be good. Okay, all that's left to do is um, for me to say goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Get in touch with us on Twitter, uh, at New Age Boxing UK, at New Age Podfather, at The Seven Walls of Boxing. Just The Seven Walls. Let's not, uh, let's not add words. So close. <laughs> that's all of your Twitter characters. <laughs> yeah, true enough. Um, right, so yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And a special thank you as well to David Allen for joining us tonight and giving us his time. Yep. Absolutely brilliant to have Dave Allen on there. You know, appreciate that. Um, that's all from me. Always want to shout out the guys who contribute regularly. Sam Khan, Crazy John, you know, Sam McGee, everyone who, who puts Scott the comments McGee. in. Scott, Scott McGee. McGee. Sorry. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> Um, anyone that throws, you know, what I mean, Mark, get involved. Yeah, there's various. Yeah, ones. yeah. We, we, we'll have we, to make a special club, like in our corner or something. Have a little club of constant. If you, if you, if you contribute, say five questions or more, you can get into the corner. Yeah, mix, send your tasty. Corner. Mix, he's always on it as uh, well. Send your say James Sunderland. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really appreciate all you guys getting involvement. We might get some of you guys on Skype and throw some questions at you. So look, you know, keep enjoying it. You know, we do it for you guys. Cheers. Watch it.